0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. And we are with you in real time this week. I'm joined by Helen Thompson and Chris Bickerton. Some of us have been away, you may have noticed.
1: Uh, summer highlights. Summer It has to be swimming in the sea, and the... Atlantic
2: Ocean was, I think, around 18 degrees. The
0: boat trip around the fjords in Oslo was
2: magical. Getting completely soaked on the rain and (laughs) marshes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) As always, we're in my office and there are some rumbly lorries going down the road outside. Um, Please don't be put off. They come and they go. And so we thought we would talk about things that have been on our minds. We haven't gathered around this table for about a month. Stuff's been happening. It always does. British politics has sort of been on holiday. I think Theresa May comes back to work today. American politics has not been on holiday. I don't think, she, I mean, but Trump, it doesn't really, he's either on holiday all the time or he's never on holiday. There's no, but two weeks ago we had North Korea that rumbled on for a while. This has been the week of Charlottesville and the white supremacist um, violence. That story is ongoing. We're not gonna focus on Trump today. I'm sure we will in future episodes. But each of us has sort of thought about something that's just been nagging away at us for a while. I'm going to talk in a little bit about Corbyn and Venezuela. But Helen, you want to talk about Congress and Russia. So not Trump and Russia, but Congress, which is still Trump sucks up all the oxygen, all the airtime, everyone's attention. But American politics is still operating by a set of rules. And Congress is the engine room of American politics. So what is the thing that you think people haven't quite noticed?
2: I think what that is, is how Congress acted in relation to the sanctions, the sanctioned legislation that it passed a few weeks ago. Some of that legislation was directed against Iran and North Korea, but the really important part was directed against Russia and in principle against European companies dealing with Russia. Obviously, the way in which this whole issue has been framed in a lot of the media discussion has been around Trump and the question about Russian interference in the American election and Trump's or the Trump campaign's possible collusion with that. So the whole frame in which this has been looked at is this is a way of constraining Trump and in some sense Trump and Russia had this coming to them for what they jointly supposedly did. But I think that there's a much sort of more important in some sense, certainly for the long-term story, is what's going on here. And this is essentially that Congress, near unanimously, because there were only two votes against in the Senate and three in the House of Representatives, has effectively decided to change something quite fundamental about American foreign policy and to make it very difficult for the president to do anything about that. And certainly in the last 50, 60 years, probably longer than that, certainly since the Second World War anyway, is the president has been the dominant political actor in American foreign policy. But what we've seen here is essentially that Congress has said that it wants to change the context of Russia sanctions in a way that is hugely consequential for the European Union, particularly for the northwestern member states of the European Union, in fact you could say for all of them in different ways, and that it wants to draw a line under the way in which the sanctions with Russia had been dealt with since the Obama presidency, the first sanctions against Russia were put in place in 2014 in response to what happened in Ukraine. And what was striking about those sanctions was that they didn't in many respects hurt Russia very deeply and in particular they didn't hurt in any deep sense Russia's energy interests and they certainly didn't do anything to disrupt the capacity of European Union states to trade with Russia in relation to energy and in particular in relation to gas. Now what you got on the European Union side is there's profound divisions that have been going on for the last two years about essentially the agreement between the Russian gas company, Gazprom and various five European companies I think they are, to build a new pipeline called Nord Stream two that will basically take more gas direct from Russia to northwest European countries and bypass the pipelines that go through Ukraine.
0: So there's a huge amount in that. Let's just unpack it a bit. So, so I've got a whole series of questions or thoughts about this. So one is, one of the dominant themes of American politics in recent years is that it's almost impossible for Congress to pass legislation because so bipartisan, uh, I was almost going to say bipartisan, so the opposite of bipartisan, everything is toxic and divisive. And certainly on almost all domestic matters, that seems to be the case. I mean, Obama, spent six years having to find a route round Congress because nothing could go through it. So here we have near unanimity on a foreign policy question. So before we get onto to the question of the EU, and what this might do to American European relations, what's going on there? Why is it that Congress can't legislate on domestic matters, but can come to an almost unanimous agreement on a really consequential, but also quite controversial issue in foreign policy?
2: I think that is absolutely the question, and it's a question I've been thinking about for the last few weeks. I don't actually really know what the answer to it is, I'm afraid. It just is an overwhelming difference between what has happened in domestic matters. I mean, I think you could reasonably say that essentially Congress hasn't been able to legislate in domestic matters since 2010, since essentially the Democrats lost their filibuster-proof majority in the Senate. And here you have Congress acting, as you say, near unanimously. And... The only thing I think that one can say about this is, is that you, it is in some sense, though I don't think this is the entire explanation, reflective of just how deep in the political establishment the opposition to Trump is. So what this legislation does, leaving aside the geopolitics of it, is it effectively stops the president acting in foreign policy terms on what you might say is, if not the most important, one of the most important matters in foreign right. policy of our time.
0: So could it then be a harbinger of things to come in the sense that if you get the right question, the fact that almost the entire American political establishment is against Trump, that does find its voice. As things stand at the moment, that has to be a foreign policy question. But presumably, as we go down the line, these people will feel empowered by this. Other issues will allow that to happen.
2: I think so. I mean, I think that if you looked at it purely from Trump's point of view, is it was a total disaster. It effectively, in some sense, ends his, ends his presidency. Now, some people might think that that's a, that's a good thing. And you saying
0: that, given the coverage we've had this week, I mean, you're you're the only person I've heard, maybe I don't read the right things, you're the only person I've heard say that that's the biggest disaster for Trump of the past few weeks.
2: I think it is. I think, I mean, I don't want to get into... The, the, now, let's not talk about the other yes, disasters. Let's so focus on this one. Effectively, what that showed was that he would not be able to do anything in relation to Russia for the entirety of his presidency, so long as it lasts. And it shows how completely deep and comprehensive the opposition to him within the legislature was. Because that's an astonishing thing for a legislature to to do, unless, I think, that they're saying, actually, we don't recognise the legitimacy of this presidency.
1: It's fascinating. I think I'm a bit sceptical about how this could extend to other issues. I mean, I think the reasoning seems to be that if trump is perceived as being too soft on russia in cahoots with russia in many sort of troubling ways then taking a harder line on russian sanctions does have a unifying impact on congress as an expression of its criticism of the of the president that seems to me as explanations go pretty compelling but as a basis for a general opposition to the presidency i mean it'd have to be worked out issue by issue. I mean, there must be loads of other issues where people in Congress wouldn't see eye to eye in the same way. And I think foreign policy is much more susceptible to being a basis for some kind of common position across the political spectrum than domestic matters. It always has been. And you
0: could say this is kind of the mirror of the classic story that's told about presidents, which is when they can't legislate, they do stuff in foreign affairs because it's the only place they can find an outlet. And you could say after however many years of not being able to get anything done in Congress, they found an outlet for something that allows them to feel empowered.
2: I can see that, but I think that if you look at the the substance, though, of what's in this bill, and you look at the situation in regard to US relations with Russia, even a year ago, this was very much contested political territory. So Trump
0: is the person who has unified Congress against him?
2: The, The Obama administration absolutely was not willing to take action on the issue of the Nord Stream pipeline. It was opposed to the Nord Stream pipeline, but it was not prepared to do anything about it. And at the same time, this time last year, Obama and John Kerry were still working on trying to achieve a ceasefire in Syria with Russia. And were at least in July of last year, we're still talking about joint military action between US and the Russian military. I mean, we're so far away from that now. There you had a democratic president who was down one path where Russia was concerned. You had people like John McCain, I'm just using as an example, who were extremely unhappy about that and were complaining bitterly about what that represented in terms of US-Russia relations. So this was contested political space. Now it's not contested at all.
0: I mean, there's so much in this, but the other big aspect of it is what it means for Europe, as you said, because the meaty part of this legislation constrains European companies in their dealings with Russia... So one of the many ironies here is potentially that means for some Europeans, Trump is their friend. I mean, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And if Congress is trying to stop European countries and companies doing the energy deals they want to do with Russia, then is it possible that those companies and countries are going to have to look to Trump to forge some kind of alliance to allow them to get out from under this I this think that legislation is quite
2: possible, and what is because that does my head in I it have to say. is quite notable is, is that the, the, the adjustments that were made to the legislation as it was going through both houses of Congress ultimately meant that the president does still have discretion about applying sanctions against European companies, so against the extraterritorial sanctions part of this.
0: So, Germans have to go to Trump and say, Please, Mr. President, allow us to do our uh, gas dealings with the russians
1: effectively yes wow what's the position of the secretary of state on this because is he not also in some way being targeted
2: quite possibly it's not clear and the things that tillerson himself said about the sanctions were quite um, quite ambiguous i can't believe that he doesn't have some problems with them i mean the the other thing which i haven't said yet about it is is that there clearly is an American commercial interest at stake here and this is the argument that the Germans and the Austrians who at government levels have been the ones within the EU have been most vociferous on the subject keep stressing and that is is that it isn't simply that the US Congress is saying we don't want European companies to engage commercially with Russia about gas They're saying the Germans and the Austrians alleged I think not unreasonably is We want the European Union states to be buying liquid natural gas from the United States and not buying pipeline gas from Russia. On top of the questions about the geopolitics of it, there's a straightforward conflict of economic interests. And here is where the Trump position is complicated again, because Trump himself has actually been quite a strong advocate of the US selling more natural gas to European countries. And maybe quite a big part of the speech that he gave was when he was in Poland. Poland take an entirely different view of this matter than the Germans and the Austrians, I should say. They don't want to buy gas from Russia. They do want to buy it from the United States. So there's plenty of room for actually for the Americans to play the European countries off against each other as well.
0: So I'm going to ask one last question about this, which is kind of the the blunt Trump question. So you've just described an account of what's been going on in American politics, which you say is the, the heart of it, which doesn't feature much in the endless round of stories about Paul Manafort and the FBI investigation and Trump's tweeting and everything else. Do we want to say that what you've just described is the real story? Because it's quite a real politique story. And it does treat Trump as well as his opponents as sort of relatively rational actors, sort of know what they're doing, but with all sorts of conflicting interests and challenges ahead of them. Do you want to say that we should spend less time talking about Trump's tweeting and more time talking about this because I'm really unsure about this because I still think the real story given the kind of politician Trump is the surface is still really important It's not; it can't just be that there's a real politics story underneath the surface and that the surface is froth
2: I don't think the surface is froth I think that the surface is going to be pretty consequential and the surface might do for him in terms of what happens Yeah, the surface might well do for him but I do think that For the future, given that the Trump presidency will end one way or another in the end, we need to think, be engaged more with these underlying economic and structural questions.
0: Absolutely, because a lot of things that happen now, I mean, that's the thing that no one seems to be able to get beyond, which is just thinking about it's Trump world and we live in it. But
1: a lot of things that happen in Trump world will have consequences that go way beyond Trump. I don't think it's either or, I think um, it has to be both they're also not unrelated to one another. So in some ways, what's the relationship between the behaviour and the policies, uh, the policy decisions, it's kind of interesting to think about. But I think Helen's absolutely right that it's possible to get distracted, I think, by the sort of the, the curious personality of Trump and the kind of things that he does. There are, you know, important things happening. Policy decisions, politics, you know, continues. Congress operates in interesting ways. It still exists as a key actor, And I would say it's maybe the more that's the sort of the heart of the story. It may not be the decisive thing in the end, but it's still, I think, the kind of the heart of it. And it will be the thing that lives on, I think, in a sort of post-Trump era.
0: So the thing that has been not preoccupying me, but I've been thinking about on and off, I don't want it to sound like I've been obsessed about this because I haven't, um, but it's just struck me more than once that there's a question that maybe we could try and answer, relates to what's been happening in Venezuela, which is one of the big sort of global geopolitical events of recent weeks. And so we're not going to talk about that in its own terms. That would be a whole separate program. But its potential impact on British politics, because there's been quite a lot of coverage here. It's died away now, but in recent weeks, about whether Jeremy Corbyn might be damaged by this, given his support for the Chavez and then Maduro regimes. Why does it not seem to bother people? And it's clear it doesn't really bother people. I've seen articles with headlines that say things like, "So what? The next British general election is not being fought in Venezuela, it's going to be fought here. You know we've just been talking about how people have maybe missed the big story in America. Aaron on this podcast says it a lot. Foreign policy famously doesn't really register in electoral terms. But still, I would like to know more about how people think about this question. I've been interested in British politics for a long time, twenty plus years. I've been aware of Corbyn throughout that time. He was certainly a figure in British politics. Before he became leader of the Labour Party, if you'd asked me what Jeremy Corbyn stands for, I'd have said he's not a domestic politician. He's very much an international-minded politician. He's in that part of the Labour Party for whom international issues actually have primacy, so that's quite rare. The two big issues for him are Ireland. Before he became leader of the Labour Party, I would have said Jeremy Corbyn, in a sense, speaks for Sinn Féin within the Labour Party, and that's well known. And we now also know that people don't mind about that. But the, the other thing is that he is um, a supporter of Chavez. I mean, that was the thing that I knew about him. It's, it's It seems to me it's sort of central to who he is politically. And the Chavez project is in tatters. So I don't think there's any argument about that. So why doesn't it matter? And I think that in the analysis I've read of it, people don't try and sort of unpick what's going on here. Because it seems to me there are two kinds of things that people are wanting to say on the conservative part of British politics to attack him, but they don't disentangle them. So one of them is that why isn't he condemning bad people? But that has very little legs because all politicians are in that boat. I mean, it's not as if the Tories are whiter than white on these questions either. It's not like there's something special about Corbyn. There are certain regimes that he seems to be more tolerant of than others. He can turn it back on his opponents. The other question is, Are people trying to suggest that what happened in Venezuela might happen here if Corbyn became prime minister? Which seems like a stretch. But the other possibility, and then this is I'll ask you what you think, is that there is something in between the two. So this is the bit where I wonder whether there may still be something in this, which is not just, why isn't he condemning them? And after all, he said about Venezuela, what Trump has been saying about white supremacism, which is he blamed violence on all sides but with corbyn that's fine in a sense because that's what he usually says it's not i don't think people read into it what they read into trump's statements and also corbyn is consistent on this but what the chavez experiment and its subsequent failure does seem to suggest is that there is a political mindset which reacts badly to the failure of the ideological project and I just wonder whether there isn't still a possibility at the back of some people's minds that the thing that gives them doubt about Corbyn is not what he believes in, because a lot of people quite like what he believes in. And it's not his personality, because he seems quite a refreshing person. But it's the thought of, great, he's a conviction politician. He's unspun. He comes across as different from the rest. But what would happen if you gave him and people like him power, And then the things that they wanted to happen were blocked. Now, he wouldn't behave like the Venezuelan regime would behave because our institutional arrangements would make that impossible. But is there any possibility that there is still going to be lingering in the back of people's minds the next time they make a choice about who they want to be prime minister? A thought, not he should have been more critical of these people or a Corbyn premiership will end up with Venezuelan-style riots. But this guy is not going to react well to the failure of his project and all political projects fail. That's the thing that has been nagging away at me.
2: If you'd asked me this question before the general election here, I think I would have agreed with you in the sense that I th- I thought... So
0: agreed about the possibility of there still being a nagging yeah. doubt about what a politician like Corbyn does with
2: power. Yeah. I thought that that distrust of ideological projects and some sort of historical understanding, not in a particularly, you know, developed sense, but some sort of understanding of what the history of ideological projects have been and how they pretty much repeat the same pattern was, a, if you like, a, a political fact in collective British politics. And admit, sort of collective memory, in a yeah, sense. I must admit, one of the things that I've had to think about pretty hard since the election is, is that I think that I was wrong about that and that I'm not entirely sure, that, it, in fact I'm not at all sure that it is any longer and that maybe that sense has resonance with people like you and me And but that I'm not sure how wide or deep it goes amongst the, the British electorate particularly amongst people younger than us.
0: And is it in a sense, to put it in those terms, because there is a generational gap in that Politics for us still has a lingering ideological quality and it is almost post ideological for people whose entire political experience is basically post-Cold War. Is that part of it? I think that we
2: grew up in ways that actually didn't really understand at the time, in the shadow of ideological failures. You know, they came from the left and they came from the right, Nazism and Soviet communism. And it was pretty clear that there was you know, a terrible price that was paid for those regimes. And I think it did generate a view that, in some sense, particularly in intense forms, that ideology was not to be trusted politically. But the world is different, and people have grown up not under that shadow, and times are you know, extremely difficult for many people. And so the desire to believe that that situation can be radically different and somebody telling an ideological story about how that might come about, I'm not sure that saying, you know, it doesn't usually turn out very well when you go down this road really works as an argument. And of
0: course there are many other things to say, one of which is that the Labour Manifesto, we've talked about this before, was not a particularly ideological document. I mean, it's not as if Corbyn stood on the ideological Chavist platform when he ran against Theresa May. He stood on a you know, a Labour catch-all platform.
1: I think there's another possible explanation. I I agree that... Um, the venezuela accusation doesn't really stick because if it's translated into it's going to happen here then it just seems farcical but one of the other possible explanations is that there has been an appeal to the left of projects such as chavismo in in venezuela because of some sense of trying to look around the world and see where some social change is taking place and to jump on it as a possible inspiration for a disenchanted left
0: particularly post 1989. I that's mean, that's right. absolutely where the the search around the world began. And
1: there weren't that many options. And so somebody like Chavez emerges and you think, great, here's an example where you can say it's all happening in Latin America. And so Chavez had this seductive appeal for a left that had lost its sense of purpose in, in Britain and in some uh, parts of Europe. Now, if you are a, a left-wing party who's beginning to think that actually they can take hold of power, have a decent chance electorally of of winning, and begin to think seriously about their domestic project, you become just less interested in this. It's less of a factor. And so I think the reason why it didn't stick so much this time round is that you're actually dealing with somebody like Corbyn, who in the past has been associated with that, but in some sense has kind of bigger fish to fry, which is running a party that actually could possibly, plausibly win elections. So I think had it happened before... The stakes would have been less high because this would have been sort of somebody in the opposition, but it would have it would have been much more damaging. I mean there are other other examples. The Spanish left wing party, Podemos, has been massively damaged, I think, by its relationship to Venezuela.
0: And has been much more critical in recent weeks, am I right, of what's been going on there? Well,
1: I think because it it's more of a problem because some of those people were actually ideologically emerged out of Chavismo and then came to Spain, it was that way around. So, I mean, so that's interesting. I just think it's because that moment has maybe passed, even for Corbyn.
0: So two other things I want to say about this, which is that I mean, Jeremy Corbyn is, I think it's clear now, Jeremy Corbyn is a very lucky politician. We didn't realise that, but now we can see it. In this context, I think one of the things he has going for him is Ken Livingstone. I think Ken Livingston has been very useful for the Corbyn project because he is a kind of lightning rod. I mean, Ken Livingston says the things that Corbyn can't say and maybe wouldn't say. So, in this case, it was Livingston who said the context matters here. I've looked at the context. It doesn't quite sound as bad as it might when you hear it in context. But he said essentially that the reason Venezuela is in the state it is now is because Chavez did not kill the oligarchs when he first came to power. and So Venezuela is still in the grip of a kind of oligarchical and propped up by US capital oligarchical regime pulling the strings. The only way the Chavez project could have worked would have been to get rid of those people. He subsequently said he wasn't advocating killing anyone, blah, blah, blah. But nonetheless, you know, were Corbyn to have said that, that, I think that would have been very damaging. But Livingston says it. So first of all, it's a lightning rod. But secondly, Livingston says that. He says things about Hitler. He says things about the Jews. Da, da, da. But people remember that Ken Livingston was mayor of London and London didn't become Caracas. You know, Ken Livingston was, an ext- in his way, rather ineffectual, perfectly amiable mayor of London. Not particularly ideological, did a few good things. So were a Corbyn premiership to be like a Livingston mayoralty, I think people are sort of, yeah, whatever. It's not, so there's a kind of words and deeds mismatch. Helen, you're looking a bit skeptical. I
2: think that's partly true, but I also remember that the first time that Livingstone was faced with Johnson, Boris Johnson, uh, and lost that election to be mayor of London, I think the Venezuela issue actually did matter a bit and didn't help Livingstone because Livingstone was involved in various foreign policy projects for London and one of which was about some oil deal that he was striking with um, Chavez but I do recall that there was a critique that really developed in that campaign about basically Livingstone was interested in being you know like mayor of Caracas and wasn't interested in being mayor of London and that he was seeing the role in foreign policy terms if you like and at the time, the defeat of Livingston by Johnson was taken as a kind of prelude to the Conservatives becoming the largest party in the 2010 general election. But I think we can see now, looking back, it's actually astonishing that Boris Johnson beat the Labour candidate twice to be Mayor of London, when we look at how fundamentally Labour London is as a city. But I, still I think in that- those circumstances in which Livingstone could lose as badly as he did, and that that argument was played against him, that it had some potency but
0: i still think that for corbyn it's not necessarily bad news first of all corbyn has to be prime minister before then he can it can be thrown back against him Absolutely. that he's a foreign policy prime Minister. and secondly ken livingston is still around to take some of the heat yeah. and then the other stroke of luck corbyn has is of course trump because a lot of what motivates this on the left is anti-american capitalist imperialism that's when you don't have to scratch very hard. And what comes out is this sense that American capital is driving the failure of the Chavez revolution. Well, with Trump as president, anti-Americanism isn't a problem, I think, in British politics, it's certainly not for now. If nothing else, it's probably not, it doesn't matter one way or the other, but it takes a huge amount of the heat out of it. If which I think is certainly true, that a lot of Corbyn's foreign policy positions are driven by wanting to oppose what he sees as American imperial interest. And even though, as Helen will remind us, Trump is not that kind of American imperialist. But the mere fact that one of the things that Trump has said in recent weeks is that maybe we need to start looking at armed intervention in Venezuela. That's fine by Corbyn for Trump to be saying that. OK, I've got that off my chest. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a
1: month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. Chris, so you've been in France. Um, I'll let people know at the end we're going to put out a special edition, an additional podcast this week to talk about Macron in in broader historical perspective but what's your sense and I think this is something you've been thinking about what's your sense of where we are you know you're kind of our person to tell us about how French politics is unfolding where we are in the Macron presidency it's been it's been a sort of roller coaster in many ways already we're about 100 days in
1: Yep I think it's 102 days. And and
0: that 100 day thing is now it's an americanism but it's become a french milestone too.
1: Slightly reluctantly um if you can As with
0: all americanisms.
1: Yeah, but it's become a bit of a theme. I mean um you know you can't really look back after 2 weeks or after a month. After 3 months it starts to become a little bit more plausible. Politics happened so quickly this actually seemed like a bit of time now. Even
0: though part of that is French holiday. I mean, so I say British politics goes on holiday. French politics does go on holiday still, isn't oh,
1: it? Absolutely. It is on holiday currently. The last meeting of the government was, I think, on the 8th of August. Then things basically shut down. The 28th of August, I think, is when the government meets again officially. And so that's what they call la rentrée politique. But the, the, the pause... Is also an opportunity for reflection. So people are starting to think. I think some of the discussion's been pretty interesting. I mean, the French have got these two terms, again, English terms, they call Macromania, uh, Macromania, and they now have the Macron bashing, Macron bashing. These are just you know, got common, it. <laughs> common currency. <laughs> Um, and there's something a bit sort of schizophrenic, you know, going from one to the other. But the, the the figures do speak for themselves. I mean, Macron was elected on a, you know, very, very successfully uh, defeated Marine Le Pen. Sort of a wave of optimism about what Macron could achieve in France.
0: Low turnout, we have to remember, relatively.
1: Well, if we look, if we go back and look in detail, we can then unpick. But there was a certain sense in France as well as outside France that this was a decisive moment and young, sort of handsome, etc. So there was this great wave of optimism and it was felt in France as well as outside of France. Now, things have changed. I mean, his approval ratings for the month of August are down to the low 30s.
0: Which is lower than Trump, it should be said, for, that's what, for what that's worth, which isn't much. But. That's
1: right. So that's why people are beginning to sort of take note and think, what's going on? You know, is this, has something changed? Has something sort of soured? Um, and it's just interesting to try and unpick that. And I think there are some, you know, some things that have struck me. One is, I mean it's obvious, he was elected, you know, with quite a high sort of number of people voting for him. But many of those voting for him were voting against his opponent. It was a lesser evil sort of argument. It wasn't really a massive endorsement of Macron. He basically has a kind of core of, I think, 24 25%. These are the people who voted for him in the first round, really seduced by the Macron project, some of whom were absorbed by his En Marche movement um, and have continued as people involved in his, you know, in his party. But that's basically slightly less than one in four of French voters. So you then have a massive number of people who are not that convinced, quite hostile to him, in fact, but were willing to either vote for him or to to abstain. So it's not really surprising that you have quite a steep decline reasonably soon after he comes to power.
0: But does that happen each time with the French presidential election, given the way that it's set up? So... The core vote comes out in the first round and then in the second round, it's the lesser of the two evils vote. So Chirac and others, do they see an equivalent fall off in approval rating over
1: the early period? Well, no. Um, I mean, this has been quite quick. Where you have seen a sort of a distinctive change, a sort of a souring uh, of public opinion, there's usually been a pretty obvious explanation. So the one that springs to mind, I mean, there are lots of examples, but when Nicolas Sarkozy won the presidency, um, he went on an incredibly ill-judged holiday on a splendid yacht. um, The bling holiday. Yes, this was the bling-bling holiday. Everyone hated that. He never really recovered in some ways. Now, Macron hasn't done anything like that. His holidays were secret for a while. We now know that he's in Marseille. Marseille is a sort of a, a very kind of, um, as the French call it, a kind of a proletarian city. It's kind of working class city. He's on a particularly sort of luxurious place. I mean, it's not an ill-judged move. So there doesn't seem to be some explanation for why things have, have turned on him, apart from the fact that it just reveals the reasonably circumscribed nature of his support. But to go back to where we
0: started with, with Helen and American foreign policy, it is clear from the outside, he, he had a very good first sort of six weeks, but it was very much focused on him projecting internationally. He had the meeting with Trump, which and people in Britain were surprised there was less fuss about it in France than there would be if Theresa May had brought Trump over here. But there was a lot of focus on France's place in the world. And if it is true, that that's actually not what people care about compared to domestic economic bread and butter issues. Was that a mistake?
1: Well, no, so people care about it a bit. And I think the French care about it.
0: More than some. Perhaps
1: more than some. And um, this question of its status in the world, this is an issue. Now, Macron saw very quickly that he could capitalize on anti-Trump feeling and this sense of America's place in the world really being questioned. And there was some sort of room for him to maneuver and fears about the populist tide. I mean, he was very clever in seeing this was an opportunity, not in domestic politics. This was a foreign policy opportunity to actually have some sort of place for, for France in some of these big international meetings. He did that very successfully. I think it's it's probably the thing in his sort of first you know few months in power that people are reasonably satisfied with, but it doesn't run that deep. And the things that I think people probably are most sort of concerned about now is really what the future holds in terms of what he's planning to do in domestic politics. And the beginnings of that are not particularly good for him. And this is where, I mean, this is extremely interesting. Macron has committed himself to a certain set of targets. Uh, One is the budget deficit targets. He knows that he's not going to be taken seriously in the rest of Europe, and especially by the Germans, if he doesn't reach this 3%. Those are the rules. France has to respect those rules if it wants to be taken seriously. Now, he's made it very clear that's what he wants to do. And he's made some pretty unpopular decisions, some of which there's been quite a lot of kickback in France, especially from the military, about cuts that he's then had to exercise his authority on. So he's very committed to that. But what's interesting is that He doesn't really seem to have a European vision. What he's doing is that he's saying to, I think, people in France, if we want to be big big players in Europe, if we want to lead Europe, we have to get our own ship in order. And that basically means getting our budget deficit under control and reforming the Labour Code, as they call it in France, Labour laws. And those are very unpopular things that he's trying to push through with this sort of carrot of some dramatic European deal that he can do with Merkel, if that can be done at home.
2: I agree and I think that you can see that certain measures that he's done I think there's one in particular in relation to housing the french equivalent of housing benefit that hasn't gone down for young people well at all cut housing benefit for young people clearly the the row with the military and the general resigning hurt him I mean I also wonder I mean, just from the outside whether that whole thing that he did at versailles Effectively summoning the parliament to him and then the rhetoric that came out around it, effectively him comparing himself to the god Jupiter. <laughs> I find it hard to think that there weren't a reasonable number of people in France who thought, what on earth is this about? And I think that one of the things that he has a problem with is is that he became a symbol, not just actually in, for some people in France, but way beyond, as if as, you know, Macron was a symbol that supposedly populism had been defeated and put back in its box. So all kinds of in many ways, ludicrous expectations of what Macron can possibly do were put onto him. And you would have to say that he kind of encouraged it. And I think that that I was going to call it a stunt, but let's call it a performance that Versailles kind of played into that and it created pretty early on a, a sort of sense of, of hubris so, around him.
0: So let me ask two final things that relate to what we were talking about earlier with Corbyn. So there is this sort of l'état c'est moi angle to Macron and while he's still fresh and young, and the project is just beginning, people may have their doubts, but it's got sort of projection, and it carries a certain conviction to it. Do you think there is, you know, coming back to my point earlier, that nagging thought at the back of people's mind, what would that kind of politics be like, when he doesn't meet his targets? What would that kind of politics be like when the en marche movement becomes really fractious? And you know, it's, it's, it's sunny. The weather is fine for Macron. And so he's pretending to be Louis the Fourteenth. And yeah, we'll see where that goes. But that sort of personal power politics, and the failure of the project makes me feel a bit anxious. And I'm not French, I as you may have guessed.
1: Macron, it's interesting, he did encourage this. He did, I think. But there's also some basic realities on the ground. I mean, Macron's victory exposed... The entirely moribund nature of some massive existing political organisations. I mean, the socialists now, they have a tenth of the parliamentary sort of um, deputies that they had before. Um, They're down to, I think it's 34, 31 or 34. And Macron cleaned up in the legislative elections much, you know, people didn't expect him to. So he's been faced with a situation where, objectively speaking, he is just much more powerful than he expected. And it's not because, I mean, he was, he was involved in that and he was partly responsible for that and he has sort of egged that on a bit, but it's also that he just, I think, did a service to France in revealing how empty some of its political organisations were. So he has to then deal with that, and in some ways it's a poison chalice for him, I think. I'm not sure, I think um, people feel uncomfortable, I think, about this slightly top-down nature in which his political project is developing. Some people who were supporters of Macron in France and outside of France have begun to sort of talk about this, um, the emperor sort of uh, metaphor. So that's people are concerned with that. But I think it's, it's going to take a while for it to work itself out. But the, one of the main concerns is the way his organisation is run. So the way En Marche as a movement is transforming into a party, how does it actually work? What does it actually look like? And there are some people who are part of this movement as representatives in the assembly who feel like they're just being bossed around. And on top of it, they're new to this. So they're just learning the ropes and they're also being you know, disciplined very much um, and told how to how to do things and they don't like it. But that reflects, I think, the way that he runs this, this whole movement. It was always really him and it remains him.
0: So finally, the established parties are moribund. It does seem really well set up for the French Corbyn, which is sort of what he is, though he's outside of the main party of the left, Mélenchon, to kind of make hay, right? He's got a young, charismatic president who was elected on a wave of high hopes, who's already starting to look like he may have feet of clay, but who represents things, many of which are very unpopular. So like, he's personally popular, and he embodies hope. But as you say, in real practical terms, many things he wants to do are not wanted by most of the French people at all. He can also be tied to an earlier regime, which is profoundly unpopular. And then we've seen from Corbin that the kinds of politics that Mélenchon stands for, maybe are very popular. I mean, is that where the central battle is going to be? Is, it, is, is French politics for the next, say, year, 18 months going to be Macron versus Mélenchon?
1: So Mélenchon has been having a good run since the presidential elections, it's true. And we should add, by the way, Mélenchon also was untouched by
0: the Venezuela, more or less, accusations in the French presidential election. A lot was made of it. He's brushed it off.
1: He's been doing well, I think, partly because, I mean, he's, his the number of deputies in the assembly is not very large. But they are pretty skilled operators. You know, all these people who are are members of of La France Insoumise have been in politics for a long time, even though they might not have been sort of, you know, members of parliament ever before... They've been involved in local politics, so they very quickly got a handle on how things work. In contrast to those in En Marche, many of whom had no experience of politics at all, have found it more difficult. So they've created this core of skilled operators who are really using the parliamentary game to get their message across. And Mélenchon has put himself forward as the the main opposition. Now, that may succeed, but the, the question is whether the Socialist Party is able to pick itself up again. If it can't... And there was, there was open talk about it simply disappearing. You know, they're talking about selling the the iconic headquarters on the on the Rue Solferino because it's in a, too much of a plush area and also to plug a financial gap. I mean, there are big things happening which may suggest it's going to simply disappear. If that's the case, then I think, yes, Mélenchon does become quite a plausible figure to challenge Macron. You know, but the Socialist Party may manage to come back and get together again and start to position itself in which case you start to have a more divided left and Mélenchon gets challenged a bit more. But people are beginning to say if Macron fails then we all know what's going to happen it's Mélenchon versus Le Pen and people were saying that even before the presidential election. Or
0: Mélenchon versus Le Pen equivalent because who knows where she'll be in
1: five years time. Yes she's been a bit quieter people say that she's getting ready to come back after the the end of the summer. But but as a
0: way a version of Mélenchon versus a version of Le Pen and the defeat of populism will look like anything but. So as I mentioned earlier on, we're going to put out a special extra edition of Talking Politics this week, which is a conversation we recorded between two of the leading British historians of France, Robert Toombs, who's appeared regularly on this podcast and tends to call things correctly, and John Keiger, who lives in France, as well as being a historian of the French state and French foreign policy. And they're going to take a slightly more historical view of where Macron fits in to the evolution, not just of French politics, but of Anglo-French relations, including why people in France think that Brexit is Dunkirk all over again, So if you subscribe, you'll get that episode automatically. If you don't, do please download it from wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back next week, and we will be back full time with you from the start of September with a new partner, all sorts of exciting new guests, and we will be with you every week. Do please join us for that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. (coughs) Okay, <clears throat> I need to remember how we do this. Right. <clears throat> Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics, and we're with you in real time this week. It is Wednesday the fifteenth. <laughs> Sixteenth. <laughs> Let's do that again.
2: I was went to Snowdonia uh, in the first pl- early part of July.
0: Was that wasn't that where Theresa May? I think did it her was, walking yes. holiday where she. <laughs> decided to call the election. Did you have any moments where you thought this is how politics works?
2: No, I didn't. ACAST powers the
1: world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.
0: This is Roundabout Season 2 and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way.